1: Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. With me on Everyday Theology today, I have the pleasure of having Jason Myers, and Jason is an Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Greensboro College, where he teaches New Testament and lecture in New Testament at Westminster Theological Center. Jason, thanks so much for being with me today, man. Thanks
0: so much, Aaron. I'm glad to be here.
1: Now, I'm particularly excited to have our conversation today because you, with another incredible scholar, Ben Witherington III... Wrote a book on Paul called The Voices and Views on Paul and I'm particularly excited because part of my PhD is uh, critiquing some ideas of new perspective I'm I'm a fan of new perspective I just gotta throw that out there but you know as any scholar should critiquing it Um, but I'm just excited to talk to you because I I need to learn more (laughs) Um, so my first question for you and that is what is the new perspective for our listeners and why are people talking about it? I feel like it's been a conversation in the academy for a long time, but not really in the church.
0: Yeah, definitely. So the question with, with any book at this point in human history is why, why another book on the on- lots of things let alone biblical studies let alone Paul let alone you know things like um, Romans and Galatians um, so I think what's interesting about the nature of these these books that I of course now contributed to myself is that I think there are always a, a need for people to gain access to kind of some of the maybe not so current conversations in biblical studies because of that lag that we always see. Right. Yeah. Um, and this isn't, and I think there's a special tension there of like, we don't want to rush maybe necessarily to all the newest and best ideas. We want to see some shelf life, um, on them. I think that's a healthy, you know, yeah. Um, stance to take, especially at like a, a church level, uh, the newest isn't always the best. And so I think, you know, there's always that lag from what's happening in scholarship to what's hitting, kind of the mainstream to what's hitting people in the pews, there's always, you know, a lag there of 10, 15, 20, maybe even 25 years, right? Um, And so, yeah, you're right. Some of these conversations we've been having for a very, you know, long quote unquote time in biblical studies, so much so that the new perspective on Paul is, as we write in the introduction, is neither new, uh, right, nor singular. There's not a singular perspective uh, on this. And so I think part of this is allowing people to kind of catch up the speed of what's kind of had a little bit of staying power in at least uh, New Testament studies on uh, helping them to kind of get their feet wet um, with, okay, what what have scholars been saying based on what we know of, you know, historical evidence about Paul? And then how does that affect the way that we, you know, live our lives as followers of Jesus um, in, in the here and now? And, and what is the best that can kind of come from that? So I think the nature of this book is kind of giving people uh, an overview of some of the main Lines of thought, some of the main players, some of the main arguments, uh, yeah, and offering that critique and praise where, where necessary. Because you're right, you know, not not every idea, no, no idea is perfect. Um, and part of the scholarly conversation is that back and forth of kind of lobbying on an idea, hearing critique, and then kind of moving forward.
1: Now, I made a big mistake, and that big mistake was. I always ask for our um, guests to give us a little bit of information about themselves, who they are, and I was so excited to get into this conversation. I just realized, you know, I never asked Jason about his life. So let our listeners know a little bit about you, and then we'll dive into some of those perspectives. Sure. Uh,
0: Yeah. So um, I have my PhD in biblical studies from Asbury Theological Seminary. And I guess the best way to sum up what I'm interested in is the kind of intersection of uh, scholarship, the academy, uh, and the church. So uh, I grew up in the church. I don't really have any, if at all, memories that weren't shaped by (laughs) uh, sitting in a pew or running around in a pew or a chair. um, And then really being interested in kind of the nature of Scripture uh, and the life of uh, you know a faith community, and so uh, that kind of set me off on a path to study biblical studies from undergraduate on. Kind of put all my eggs in one basket, uh, but I've enjoyed the journey um, thus far. And so um, we're here in North Carolina in Greensboro, uh, where I teach at a small. Uh, liberal arts college um, called Greensboro College. And I also do some lecturing uh, over in England for Westminster Theological Seminary um, uh, in uh, the UK. I've been doing that for the last couple of years. And so um, I really enjoy getting to study scripture. Um, I'm also on staff uh, at our church, which is an Anglican church called Church of the Redeemer uh, here in Greensboro, North Carolina, where I largely run our preaching team. So I help uh, I preach once a month. I help develop sermon guides um, wow. for our sermon series, um, and then also help our community groups. And really, it's, it's again, that intersection of how does scripture um, impact the life of the church, the the impact right. of us as Jesus followers. And so that's what really, really gets me excited um, about doing this, because I think that, you know, there is life, you know, in these texts, um, things that we need to know and understand to be uh, who Jesus wants us to be in this particular kind of cultural, political, historical moment. Uh, right. on, the per- on the personal side of things, uh, I'm married. Uh, my wife and I have been married for 13 years. Her name is Lisa. And just a year ago, September, uh, we welcomed uh, our first son uh, into our family. Uh, nice. name, yeah, he's he just turned a year old uh, in September. Um, and his name is Augustine Matthew, named after the church father. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he goes by August. And he's just been just a, a bundle of joy, <laughs> uh, a bundle of, um, surprises, uh, and challenges that have been both kind of exhausting, but also, you know, <laughs> entirely, entirely fun uh, and exciting. So most of our days, um, when I'm not teaching or writing is usually spent hanging out with him, um, and with our group of friends here in, here in North Carolina.
1: Well, congrats on that. Thanks. One day my wife and I will take that journey. Who knows yeah. when though?
0: It's, it's a fun one. <laughs>
1: um, all right, the new perspective. If if you can, I mean most people don't even understand like if we say the new perspective, like why are we even saying the new perspective? But what is if you can give like a reader digest, what is the new perspective on Paul so we can have our listeners on the same page when we're using this language like new perspective.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. It's always helpful to define our terms here at the beginning. So, obviously the term itself, the new perspective implies the obvious, right, that there was an old perspective uh, on Paul. And so that's really probably where, where, where we should begin. So uh, the new perspective is kind of um, a multi-pronged effort, I would say, by a couple different scholars to reread Paul kind of in light of what we know about the first century evidence of language, of society, of history, and really try to give a kind of a, a nuanced reading of the Apostle Paul. Now, this does come kind of in, in response to, as I mentioned, an, an old perspective, or sometimes called the traditional perspective on Paul, which is probably what most of our readers are familiar with, and that's that's not a bad thing. Right. Um, but it's, it's a traditional reading, kind of via the Reformation. I'm skipping over a lot of things here, but, <laughs> <laughs> namely that Paul, you know, is opposed to, you know, us earning our salvation. On us needing to you know believe in Jesus, um, put our faith in Christ uh, for salvation, um, and that this is what Paul is kind of aimed at. And so his message, um, from a traditional perspective, is kind of kind of timeless, right? Wherever we confront kind of human energy and effort, uh, we need to respond to that with um, you know the the gospel, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and so again, I would say a lot of that isn't isn't wrong, and I think Paul agrees with all of that, uh, the question that new perspective kind of proponents beginning kind of in the 1960s and seventies were wanting to do is say, is this the entirety of what Paul was up right. to, uh, in, in those letters? And so I think, um, yeah, kind of stuff up a long conversation. Um, the, the new perspective wanted to help kind of supplement and kind of maybe expand a little bit of what Paul was doing, uh, in the first century by being attuned to, okay, what was, the particular problems that Paul was facing. Was it kind of a, a works based righteousness um, from certain Jewish quarters, or was it something different? Was it this kind of relational, there might we even say sociological problem of how Jews and Gentiles kind of come together uh, as a singular body uh, in the first century? Um, right. So, um, it really was kind of in that good reformational sense a back to the sources movement. Um, And so, yeah, which,
1: which is why I think, you know, someone like N.T. Wright Mm -hmm. doesn't like, you know, the terminology new perspective, yeah, right? Uh Because what he says is it's the most ancient perspective, Mm -hmm. which can sound a little pretentious, right? Like I've got the most ancient perspective, but it's because we're trying to recapture, right? Recapture Mm -hmm. what Paul was Mm -hmm. in his context, not recapture Paul for Luther and Calvin.
0: Yeah, I think I think in the best sense, uh, you know, kind of rhetorical flourishes aside, it, it is an ancient perspective, and I think it actually flows. and, and Wright has talked about this out of that kind of reformational um, impetus of let's understand Paul on Paul's terms. Um, you know, and I think there's where you know Wright and others have a lot of. Um, sympathy right with the reformational readings how do we go back and understand paul just as luther and calvin and other reformers tried to do in their day right um and so yeah it is kind of a a rhetorical move to say let's go back to the sources um to to kind of do that and I, i think looking now you know 20 to 30 years on from the new perspective i think it's kind of um maybe you know right and what it affirms and maybe wrong and what it denies, um, or maybe vice versa. Um, and so I think that there's a a nature of, yeah, what is Paul up to in that first century context and how does that help us understand kind of where we're at today?
1: And, you know, that's, that's a lot, right? I, I know there's not like a singular issue, but maybe, especially in light of the work that you've done for your book, what might you say is like, you know, the, We'll start with like just the biggest one. What's the biggest recapturing that we see when we do that exact thing, when we look at Paul through that ancient perspective or at least attempt to?
0: Yeah. So I think one of the things that might interest our readers is, so if you had to ask, you know, what, what is Paul's kind of famous teaching, you know, we might say it's like justification by faith. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, Paul is the apostle of, of justification, um, One interesting thing is that – and this has been noted by many – is that, you know, that language only appears in a couple letters. Right. um, Primarily in Romans and and Galatians, a few other smatterings here and there. Um, And the interesting thing about that is that that language appears – in places where we know that there are kind of fractious relationships between Jews and Gentiles. Um, And if that kind of maybe piques your interest, I think that's where this whole conversation kind of begins. Why is it that Paul refers to this doctrine in this particular place? Um, Why is it that justification language largely doesn't appear in something like 1 Corinthians? Um, You might say, well, maybe it's there in the background. Sure. But explicitly, why does it Um, kind of hit the radar in these kind of social settings. And I think that's really what kind of the new perspective, if we wanted an entry point, that may be kind of uh, just the evidence-based approach, right, is kind of trying to delve down into that and see what Paul is up to. Um, And I think what this helps us do is not kind of homogenize um, or maybe oversimplify, um, a lot of Paul's letters. I think that's what we have to do as humans, right? We we have to simplify, <laughs> but yeah. there, there's a danger in that. In that, you know, um, Ephesians is not First Corinthians, uh, Romans is not First Thessalonians. So Paul has unique messages that he wants to give to different communities, and I think that raises the need for us as readers of Scripture to be attuned to know that it's not like a one size fits all all the time but that Paul has particular situations that he's responding to and i think right. the new perspective does a great job of being attuned right to those specific situations
1: now what is that different theology of justification that comes out of that because you know what we'll hopefully get into after that answer is why are so many people upset yeah, yeah about what new perspective has done
0: yeah, I think yeah, those are two really important questions. So I think one of the big kind of takeaways from a new perspective, understanding of justification, and people might disagree with me on this a little bit. Um, I don't think that depending on your author, I don't think they would necessarily disagree with a traditional um, reading that, you know, we are saved by our faith in Christ. There's nothing that we can do to earn that. I think that depending on your author, I'll just speak for Dunn and Wright. I think they they agree with that, so the, there's no disagreement.
1: Um, I feel like both Dunn and Wright have multiple times in multiple yeah. books specifically said, "Yeah, we don't disagree with that idea."
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, and the question is, okay, so why has there been confusion? I think where the confusion is is what does that great gospel truth mean for a community that is diverse. Yeah, um, and so I think the the real pastoral question is: so if you are accepted in Christ, in in salvation, not based on what you do, what kind of sociological export does that have with a community? Um, and I think that's where the new perspective has come along and said, okay, Paul takes this great and kind of glorious truth, right, and applies it in a in a, in a sociological context of Jews and Gentiles in the first century who do not get along. And so I mm. think the, the, the great part about that is that it's saying, okay, let's affirm this and then see how that embodies itself in a particular community that is broken and divided. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's been a lot of uh, confusion on what um, that what they've meant by that. But I think, yeah, like you said, they've repeatedly, at least for these two authors, right, said that, no, we, we affirm the the doctrines of, um, the Reformation. Um, but we want to be attuned to the other things that Paul is doing with those great and kind of glorious truths. Um,
1: and yeah, how does that affect the church? Like if we think about that in terms of, okay, if, if these kind of more reform doctrines and and that definitely is more done and right, right? Like E.P. Sanders might be a bit more, um, Is inflammatory the right word? I don't know, like a bit more kind of challenging towards some of those things. But if we're not changing necessarily those kind of reform doctrines, what good is coming out of why, again, why did we need to do this? Why did we need to look at Paul back, back in this context?
0: Yeah. And this goes back a little bit further in history, but you know, a lot of these readings were definitely spawned out of kind of the, you know, the, the, the post Holocaust moment. Right. So uh, after World War Two and the atrocities that happened, um, one of the questions was kind of, well, how, how did we get here? Right. Um, and some of a very long conversation, you know, there are multiple um, kind of trains of thought here. But one of it was a particular reading of the New Testament that was pretty anti-Semitic. Um, and yeah. There's a whole chapter in the book on this, but, you know, it's basically saying, you know, when we make Judaism kind of the caricature, uh, kind of this, you know, very grotesque, uh, I would say wrong <laughs> interpretation of it, you know, it, it spawns all these other things. And, and part of that was Old and New Testament scholarship and biblical studies that kind of um, – really caricatured that. And so a lot of these kind of rose up in response to that, saying, okay, how do we kind of come back from that? And so it was a rereading of the evidence um, of, of what we call Second Temple Judaism, um, of of even the Old Testament to some degree, uh, of how do we understand what Jewish groups believed at the time of Jesus. And so um, you had a lot of um, people doing this throughout throughout up and to and through World War II, but really it was the post-Holocaust moment that really kind of captured this kind of needing to go back to the evidence um, to see what had gone wrong, and uh, E.P. Sanders probably just did the best job of that. Um, There there were other people who who made objections uh, to kind of those caricatures, but – Sanders' work, he wrote a work in 1977 uh, called Paul and Palestinian Judaism. Um, And there just just really hadn't been a kind of monumental rereading like that. Um, And he really pushed the the pendulum a little bit on getting us back into – second temple Jewish sources. Um, and these are sources, you know, that are written after the old Testament before the new Testament, um, and say, okay, what did Jewish groups around the time of Jesus believe about, you know, who is God, the nature of faith, the nature of works, the nature of salvation. Um, and he really just said that there's been a big misunderstanding that all Jews in Jesus' day were kind of legalistic. Um, they're all working for their salvation. And this is what Paul kind of, you know, trounces on. Um, and to do that, he just kind of went through just almost like a dictionary esque approach, right. Encyclopedic nature of text by text, by text, by text. Um, yeah. There's of course been disagreement with his interpretations of that. But what I think he did show was that was this and that the, the Judaism of the first century is actually pluriform. There are Judaisms, right? Um, so we just can't paint with a broad brushstroke. Um, that we need to be attuned to that. And so this is kind of what really uh, kicks off in many ways, um, that rereading of Paul to say, okay, what form or what version of Judaism was Paul kind of responding to uh, in this context?
1: Right. Which Maybe as a kind of a second point, um, you know, if we talked a little about justification, um, we'll talk a little bit about that. Maybe the second point of one of his rereadings that, you know, James Dunn picked up a lot, Mm -hmm. which is covenantal nomism. Yeah. Right. And what is this covenantal nomism thing? And how is it a a vein of Judaism that Paul is reacting against?
0: Yeah. So this covenantal idea of the law um, was kind of coined by uh, Sanders And what Sanders basically said is like, when we talk about the law and we take it out of the context of the Old Testament, um, we take it out of the context of the covenant in which it was given. Um, And so, yeah, Dunn and Wright and others have really responded to this element that you have to understand the nature of the Mosaic Law, Ten Commands, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, um, and even the conversations about those texts in the Second Temple period Within the context of what we call the the covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant, um, and so um, what that does is it kind of reframes that the law isn't just this kind of nebulous thing that God gives, right? Like here's some rules you got to follow. If you don't, bad news. If you do. Good news. Um, It's not nebulous in that if you follow the law, congratulations, you get to be with me forever in heaven. Um, That's a really what we call decontextualized reading of the law. Yeah. But if you start in Genesis and read through the Old Testament, what you find is that God gives the law uh, as kind of a a sign of his grace. So there's Mm -hmm. nothing that Israel can do to kind of earn that relationship with God, right? Um, But that God rescues Israel out of Egypt, by his power, by his might, by his grace, right? Um, And then he gives them a way of life to follow. right. So so that the law then, in terms of the covenant, is how you live out that covenant. It doesn't establish the covenant. It doesn't make salvation. Um, It it evidences it. Um, And this shouldn't strike our New Testament readers as um, all that surprising. Um, The fact that we have a covenant of grace and then law actually is mapped onto the new testament if you turn to the gospel of john right jesus says uh, if you love me you will keep my commandments right and so this idea that love the the relationship precedes the 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 law keeping right is actually mapped in even into the words of jesus um, in the gospel of john it seems to be god's pattern he he initiates this relationship with a with a people because he loves them because he wants to be, be gracious. And then he gives them a way to, to, to kind of live that out. And so when we, when we read the law that way, um, it really shifts. It's, it's, it's a new perspective, right? Yeah. Um, and that the law isn't given for Israel to earn their relationship with God. It's meant to evidence that relationship. So, so how's that relationship going? Right. Um, are you following the 10 commands? Well, that's a good sign. That you're a member of the covenant. If if you're if you're disobeying, let's just say the Ten Commands, we're gonna have a really hard time knowing if you're a member of the covenant. Um, Today in kind of Christian language, right, we say we we look at the fruit of a person, right? Um, and that doesn't entirely disqualify someone, right, from being part of God's people. But you know, if you're murdering, stealing, lying, uh, committing adultery all over the place, we're going to have some follow-up questions on um, <laughs> um, just how that relationship with Jesus is going, you know, um, you know, maybe, maybe you are really part of, you know, God's covenant people, but by the way that life is currently going, it's raising a lot of questions.
1: <laughs> yeah. Which I think it's interesting. Cause I know Dunn sometimes uses this language for the law and he calls it like the guardian angel. Yeah of Israel, right? Like, uh, a way of staying in relationship, not a means of getting into relationship. Yeah. Yep. Or like you're saying, evidencing that relationship, or if you did fail at something, a means of repairing the relationship.
0: Yeah. And that was one of the big things I think Don and Sanders and others brought out. And it's, it's helpful for our, our listeners to, to, to kind of get this piece is that, you know, when we talk about the law, Um, we sometimes have these ideas that it was meant to be done perfectly, um, that, that it needed 100% obedience, no, no kind of mistakes allowed. And really what this does is it flies in the face of the actual evidence of the Old Testament itself. Namely that there's this whole book called Leviticus that has the atonement system, all those sacrifices and, and offerings that you could do and, and, Sanders brings this out that the law had in it a built-in mechanism um, for repairing what had been broken. Um, and so the law itself assumes that it's going to be broken, hence Day of Atonement, hence the grain offerings, hence the sacrifices. Um, and so it's both kind of, yeah, that, that guardian, that comes out of Paul's language in Galatians. The law was a, a teacher, a tutor meant to guide Israel towards the Messiah, right? Um, and so that in it, it never needed sinless perfection. Um, and this will really strike, I guess, more offensively, maybe against some some, some Lutheran ears, right? Um, because Luther was pretty adamant on, you know, the law is driving you to your need for Christ, um, which yeah. is certainly, uh, I'll, I'll rely on done on this one. This is a aspect of the law. It's probably not the total aspects yeah. of the law. And so I think and, when we... Do that, yeah. We need to keep that in mind,
1: and um, so why, you know, to kind of get to that, you know, salacious question, why are people upset? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Because you know, the way that you're talking about it, and clearly the way that I'll talk about it, because I think we both ourselves are pretty within the larger camp of new perspective thought, Mm -hmm. you know, we can be pretty Mm -hmm. positive about it, yeah. So why are people upset? Why are other scholars and particularly, and this is not to be a, a generalization, but just yeah. maybe anecdotally what I see, mm-hmm. particularly those within a lot of reformed camps, pretty up in arms that Wright and Dunn and Sanders would be saying these things.
0: Yeah, I think there's multiple ways to kind of respond to that one. So I think the 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 reaction is anytime you know, we, we get comfortable, we get used to, 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 to what we know, right? And so I think there's always, you know, um, some sort of kind of unpleasant reaction to a challenge, um, especially as that relates to, to kind of things that we hold dear. Um, I think you're right to note that the reaction has definitely been more in reform circles, definitely more in kind of Baptistic circles as well um and this gets into some of these big theological questions i know that you know you're interested in this is kind of you know uh divine providence and human will right um these, these age-old questions of how much god how much us and where's that where's that relationship you know and these are these have been questions just to, to reiterate that christians and i would say even you know christians have been asking for a very 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 long time um, it, it's it's a tough nut to crack and so I think the, the biggest reaction has been among Reformed and kind of Baptistic circles because it does um, renegotiate a little bit, um, kind of the, the human will aspect, the human factor. Um, it definitely places um, a, a bit more emphasis. Now I would want to say, in a new perspective, they're trying to say maybe correct and overcorrection <laughs> uh, that that humans have nothing to do. You know, absolutely. Like, almost like automatons right like like robots right, right? We're, we're acted upon um and so i think they're trying to respond to an overreaction um but in more um kind of arminian circles right when you just talk about like the doctrine of like internal security if that isn't your highest value a lot of the stuff in new perspective might not bend you out of shape that much um because what it does is we're kind of re enters into these conversations about kind of eternal salvation um and what the covenant was meant to be doing and how our actions is there a judgment by by works um and I would say that's probably where the biggest pushback has come come from to Sanders, to to Dunn, to especially Wright. Um, because they're trying to show that there are places in Paul where where what you do matters. Uh, to some extent now, to what extent is, is, is the, the, the debate, right? Right. Um, but I think for more, uh, kind of Wesleyan holiness movements, that's always kind of been on the table. And so a lot of what they're arguing for just doesn't ruffle the feathers.
1: Um, on, right. on that one. yeah. And I think it's important because these readings i think maybe the new perspective and again this is showing my hand on where i stand with a lot of new perspective stuff often gives greater weight at, or at least attempts you know I, I don't i don't know if it always succeeds but at least attempts to give greater weight to how important christian living is and how we engage with that which seems so much to be a part of paul and galatians and, yeah. and Paul's frustration and anger with Peter, you know, this kind of like apostle fight.
0: Yeah. And I, that's where I think, you know, when, ever, and this comes from a kind of a reformational stance, right? Like we always want to know not necessarily the interpretations that we've become accustomed to, but what is it that Paul is, is up to. Right. And I think if anything, these readings help us to kind of maybe reinvestigate what we've taken for granted um, and so I think, yeah, the the new perspective has definitely shifted that the role of the life of a Christian is actually really, really important. Um, and I think they actually get that from Paul. Um, it'd actually be a, a really weird reading of Paul. You, we probably wouldn't have any letters, <laughs> just to put it bluntly. Right. Um, if Paul wasn't concerned with how his community yeah. lived. Um, like, you don't need 1 Corinthians if that's not the case. And so the question becomes, maybe even practically, like, um, what is God up to in these communities and, and what way of life should they be living? Um, and so I think, yeah, refocusing that has been one of the um, great parts of, of the new perspective of saying Paul was really, really concerned with how these communities embody the gospel and, and, and their lives. It's not, it doesn't seem optional um it doesn't seem like hey here's a good suggestion i mean regulation seems actively upset <laughs> you know um it's not like hey if you get around to it here's some good things you should be doing it's like no this is what you were created for and i think this really helps us re-engage with some good biblical theology of you know when we talk about salvation the question is save for what um yeah and i think this has really helped recenter center on so what are our communities meant to be about
1: I think that's the great question. Right. And one, I think, I think that, yeah, sorry, you just got my mind kind of going there for a second of just like asking that question. If if it is Galatians and, you know, thinking about justification justified for what? And I think that is the big question that, that is actually asked where very often, you know, uh, I know you teach hermeneutics and I teach hermeneutics here and there. And, um, I, I, because I'm a a, a three-wing four on the Enneagram, I don't like doing uh hermeneutics classes on Ephesians. Yeah. Just seems like what everyone always does, and I just it bores me, right? So I'm like, all right, let's do Galatians. Yeah. And it's so hard for students to get out of the mindset that Galatians is not a book about salvation. Like it's not a book on here's how you get saved. Um, but rather that question there, what are you justified for? Is really the main crux, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're talking to a three-wing two over here, so um, oh, nice. <laughs> um, yeah, I think Galatians—that's one of the big. So I teach uh, uh, one of the classes I teach over in England is, is on Galatians, um, and I think that's one of the biggest things. That again, that oversimplification—you um, know—of of all these letters is, you know, that Paul is writing about salvation in every single letter. Um, I think Paul has I think he's interested in that for sure, but also has a bigger horizon uh, in his view. Um and not to double down on Ephesians, but you know, like this is where we we re reread these texts, right? Um so famous, you know, Ephesians two eight and nine, for you've been saved by um grace through faith, right? It's not of right. yourself, not of works. We love it. And you know, here's the hermeneutical part, keep reading, right? Um, for you are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. And here's the part that might bend our brains to do good works. (laughs) And we're like, wait, Oh, I thought you said like works aren't part of it, but that's where I would kind of say here as a, as a professor is like, um, we're, we're working with our interpretations of Paul, right? Like we're, we're responding to someone's interpretation of Paul. Maybe that's a reformation reading, right? So like works might not be the big bad boogeyman, that we've made them out to be. Um, And so Paul can say those things at the same time. In fact, if you you retranslate verse 10, I like to translate it as uh, you were created in Christ Jesus for these good works to be your way of life. Right. Mm. Um, And I think that this ties us into, you know, how we put together the pieces of the Bible. Right. Um, It matters where those works come in. Don't, don't get me wrong. Right. And the reformation is right. They, They, they don't come in on that first side of the equation. But that doesn't, and again, I know in Reformation readings there's also caricatures, right? But the works come in with what you were created for. And that and that creation language, you know, ought to evoke the language of Genesis, right? Like and this gets us back, you know, into God's big purposes uh for, for this world, right? And I think what I love about the new perspective having grown up in the church, having grown up um in, in faith communities is that it gives uh, just so much purpose of like, right. oh, there's something that we were created for to do, not just hey, me and God are great now in that vertical relationship. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna peace out, um, but no, you've been you've been invited to be a co partner, a co creator with God, right? Um, to be a sign of His kingdom, and so I think what the new perspective ultimately does is it helps give us a, a really holistic reading of all of Scripture, not in you know um, by taking away, but by, by actually by giving more, um, and, and tuning us into those, to those elements.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, I grew up in very Pentecostal circles that very much, of course, that reading of Paul was the reading. I mean, that, that maybe the reason why it's called the new pers- one of the reasons why it's called new perspective is because that reformed reading of Paul for any kind of non, you know, catholic or eastern orthodox tradition was the reading like that that if you thought about paul you thought about salvation or justification primarily as this vertical reality and sanctification you know this thing of being made like god or you know being made holy had little to do with the world and had mainly to do with Mm -hmm. your status before god yep right and i think new perspective kind of Blows that wide open to say, yeah, but like, or yeah, and uh-huh. like, yeah, we've we've missed the the main crux because, like you said, that justification language from Paul, especially when talking about the the formulation of justification by faith, is not a large part part of his writing.
0: Yeah, right? yeah, and but, I think. Yeah, that's what it does. You know, it it appears in a couple letters, not every letter. Um, And then it also, like, if we make that kind of like the reason for existence of the New Testament, you know, we we put ourselves in in this peculiar bind uh, with namely that, you know, Jesus doesn't talk a lot about justification. Um, And so, like, you have these really weird articles that come out. I won't mention their names because I don't want people to read them. But, like, you know, (laughs) did, did Jesus preach Paul's gospel? And you're like, oh gosh, that's like, a weird what? question. Like, that's a really weird way to phrase a question. Yeah. Um, like, and that's, I think, you know, our, our canons within the canon that we call it, you know, especially in, in North American circles, you know, Paul has been the guy. And I, I don't think we should play off the canon um, against one another. But when we make Paul the justification guy, um, I think that really raises a lot of questions, not only with Jesus, but also with the Old Testament, um, namely, like, what did Abraham and David and Jeremiah believe? (laughs) Like, you know, what, what were they doing back there?
1: Yeah. Um,
0: And I think what's ironic is that Paul is at pains to show in Galatians and Romans. And I would say even all the new Testament authors, right. That this story is rooted in that previous story um, that flows out of that. Right. Like certainly Jesus is the game changer, but like the, the mode of God's relationship with humanity hasn't been arbitrarily just shifted right but this is the way this is the way that he's worked time and time and time again his grace our trust and belief in who god says he is and living out a life that, that that exemplifies that that stretches from genesis to revelation
1: right which is which you know goes back to that what you said before of some readings were kind of anti-Semitic, yeah. even coming mm-hmm. out of some yeah. reformed traditions, um, because it was uh supersessionism, right? Like exactly. Well, the church is the church established, you know, through Peter and really by Paul. And um it's mainly, you know, it, it has nothing to do with Judaism. It has everything to do with Jesus. Yeah, and then,
0: then you get these de, kind of these decontextualized and this was where the kind of anti-Semitic thing begins, right? Is if you then have a problem, if Judaism is the problem. Well, then you then have a problem with Jesus because he's pretty Jewish in the Gospels. Right. And so what you have to do is what happens, right? Is you have to de-Judaize Jesus. You have to make, you have to, you have to unmoor him from those sections. And what, what was dangerous about that is that once you unmoor kind of Jesus from those Jewish settings, you can... You can kind of remake Jesus however you want, you know, and then all of a sudden you're you're looking at an image of yourself. Yeah, um, and so yeah, that sets up a, a train of 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 atrocities.
1: No, so it's a different conversation altogether. That kind of oversimplistic, like Jesus came and just destroyed Judaism because he was constantly going against the Pharisees and Sadducees. So that must be bad. Yeah, yeah. And everything else, like everything, Jesus was doing something totally new which like you said, unmoors Jesus from the fact that Jesus was doing something deeply Jewish.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it, again, I think as a biblical studies professor, you know, I'm definitely a text-based guy and it's kind of like, you know, the rocks are crying out. I think like the, the, the texts are crying out because it seems that every gospel writer is at pains to show how Jesus is connected to the old Testament. Yeah. One way you see this is all of those old Testament quotations, you know? And so like, how does that how do we make sense of all the evidence right um in that um and there's a lot of other social historical factors in the first century too um that this thing that becomes Christianity grows out of you know this multiplicity of Jewish kind of denominations, for lack, lack of a better word, um, you know, these multiple ways of being Jewish in the first century. Um, this is one of those movements, right, um, that becomes Christianity by the nature of all the non-Jews that, that join it, right? Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's this attention to detail that, you know, I think the New Perspective helps us to, to do rather than homogenize all these texts and to pay attention to, to the history, to pay attention to the social and cultural elements. And again, I think the payoff is that when we do that with ancient texts, I think we're more attuned to do it in our own world. right? Um, so I, th- I think there's a huge payoff of if we homogenize the ancient world, we're going to homogenize our world. If we oversimplify texts, we're going to oversimplify our world too. Um So I think you see that, that connection. Right.
1: And I, yeah, that's, I think that's really good. I mean, especially in the world that we live today where it feels, you know, it is so homogenized. And if you're not part of my group, you're my enemy. Right. And that can be any kind of grouping. It can be religious grouping, political grouping, you know, nationalistic grouping, um, you know, whatever it may be where, You know, I think that's one of the beautiful things about new perspective uh, theology, especially again, I I do a lot of stuff in Galatians. So that's kind of Mm -hmm. where my mind goes. It's just this constant, this constant relooking at what God is doing within the world and what he's trying to accomplish to do, uh, what he's trying to accomplish and how that's always an acting of bringing people together, not someone leaving a dinner table because of the other group.
0: Yeah, and I think that's where like, the new perspective – and again, I think you, you have the Reformers talking about obviously groups being together. And there's, there's a great book by a guy named Stephen Chester on, on Reformation readings of Paul. It's done a lot of good work to making sure you know that like, we don't characterize the Reformation either – mischaracterize the Reformation either. Right. But I think one of the big things the new perspective has done is, is talked about, again, that, that embodied gospel. How does the gospel form one, one people? And if there's anything that our world is definitely interested in today, it's it's the nature of identity, um, and and how groups get along. And I think we're living through you know kind of a, a current moment of a very fractious, divided world. And I think one of the things that the the new perspective reading of Paul does it says, hey, how you work that out together really, really matters. Um, and so you know, looking back through history, the fact that we could have things like, so I guess to put it this way, like if you're living in the 1950s. What does the gospel say to Jim Crow? Mm, um, you know, yeah. I think, you know, if you take a very stereotyped reading of it's just you and God, it, it really doesn't say anything. Because as long as you believe the gospel, you're good. Your world doesn't need to change. But, you know, I think one of the things that the new perspective maybe could have done then is doing what Paul does in Galatians two, right? Like that situation in Antioch. You know, Peter removes himself from the Gentiles and Paul says, you are not walking in the truth of the gospel right um, and I find that so fascinating because it's, it's the social setting that Paul takes the, the doctrine of justification by faith and says that if this means anything it affects who you sit next to yeah um, at that dining table um, and if that doesn't speak to to our North American world if that doesn't speak to our world today um, I don't know what does <laughs> um, <you> know. <laughs> Not, to, not too much it, really? really. Yeah, I don't know how that would apply. You know, um, seems irrelevant.
1: <laughs> and it's anything but right. It's anything but. And and I th- and I'm with you. You know, you said something at the beginning of the podcast that like, you know, the text, you know, isn't isn't is exciting. Like mm-hmm. Scripture should be exciting. Yeah. And I think it is exciting, but there was definitely a large chunk of my life where it was boring as heck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because I only ever read it in that very kind of sterile, up and down, you know, vertical way of this is just about my relationship with God and nothing else. And because of that, I was like, well, I'm fine. So everything's I'm fine. Doing. Right. Like but it wasn't until, I, you know, the, my very first time, this is kind of my little story with new perspective, my very first time coming from that tradition, coming from, you know, a Pentecostal tradition uh, that is very much influenced in terms of its understanding of justification by kind of the reformed kind of theology, sanctification, whole other issue. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Justification very much. Um, my first time reading N. T. Wright, I, I remember going up to a pastor and being like, this guy's a heretic. Now I've very much repented since then. Right. To be like, I was such an idiot to be an eight, I think I was 17, be a 17 year old calling anyone a heretic, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, three years later, I pick up that book again after, you know, doing some actual studying and I get, this guy's brilliant. Like, and while I'm in my PhD journey now and I'm like, yeah, I disagree with him on these areas, but I still think he's brilliant, right? Because it actually helped scripture come alive and tell me that there was something important in Scripture, not just for my relationship with God,
0: yeah, I think that's a, you know that's the nature I think of what's missed when people kind of step into the academy is that you know we live in a world the academy that world is a world of critique right it's a it's a world of disagreement, right? No yeah. one agrees with anybody, you know that's how we you know write books and things like that. you know if we all agreed, we'd be like, all right, let's go study you know astrophysics now um but like that's the nature of our field is that there is disagreement. Um, but that that's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. That's how we hone ideas uh, together. And so, yeah, you know, I think uh, a very similar journey um with with Wright, you know, I, I maybe approach him a little bit more favorably, and that I think I had that second stage of your journey where just so many pieces fell into place. right um, like so I, I use this analogy in like hermeneutics a little bit, but like it's like you got all the puzzle pieces out on the table, and that's how I grew up. like I grew up Baptist and. One of the great i think treasures of that was like you learn scripture <laughs> like that's all we did but it's like having all these puzzle pieces on the table and then someone comes up and shows you the box top uh to the puzzle and you're like oh okay so like yeah this green part like that's a tree <laughs> um and right this is like part of the, the sky over here like and it's like that's how i've been living my whole kind of christian journey was with all these puzzle pieces and no clue how they fit together um and what Wright did and others obviously have done this but it's shown how the how the story fits together Um, look and and it's just a brilliant ability
1: look what new perspective can do Mm -hmm. it can take a baptist and a pentecostal (laughs) and have them have a good conversation together you know what i mean yeah, if there's yeah, any exactly. proof in the pudding, there it is right there.
0: Yeah, it brings uh, yeah a lot of different groups around, you know, and that's the thing about the about the academic world too, you know, it's people made up of theological traditions that are interacting with with text, right? Um, and, you know, I think we all bring these unique things to it, you know. So now, certainly in an Anglican tradition, you know, it's kind of weird. I'm, I'm much more attuned to tradition, which might strike you as odd for someone who's Interested in, in, in the new perspective, right? Those would seem to be at odds because the new perspective is breaking down some of those old traditions. But you know, I think that that's the nature of what we're engaged with. Certainly in the church, and certainly within the academy, is how do we make sense of these texts for the life of life of the church? At least that's that's my goal. Uh, it's not not everybody's, but um, yeah, I think how we read the story is super helpful and super important for how we live.
1: It it may seem odd and then at the same time it's also very similar to my journey because i am now engaging in more liturgical spaces as i'm looking to kind of just change my credentialing and where i where i land and and there's something beautiful about even more beautiful about liturgy now in reading scripture through the new perspectives yes yeah. yeah which yeah, Definitely is. Maybe maybe that needs to be a topic of a book at some point.
0: That could be a good one, yeah. Because you know, I think Paul is liturgical. <laughs> I think right. most most Jewish groups are. Most of the early Christians were certainly liturgical, and yet within that liturgy, you know, within that framework, right, they had powerful ways of challenge and of critique. And I think that's the biggest thing: is that liturgy gives us the language um, and the foundation, right, from which to make a critique. Yeah. <laughs> so that we're not just free floating, right? This isn't just like, Hey, this is like my opinion, man. <laughs> like it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a rooting that says right. out of the commonness of what we believe I can make this challenge. And I think you see Paul doing that, you know, even like the commonness of, of texts, we, we believe in the Pentateuch, right? So if he's engaging with someone, it, it's out of that framework, it's out of that rooting that the argument makes sense.
1: Now, Jason, we're, we're coming to the, end of our time together and I'm going to of course absolutely say people need to go grab your book great that'd be awesome right Um, (laughs) anyone who's interested um, remind us of the title again and where they can get it
0: yeah so it's called voices and views on Paul exploring scholarly trends Um, and it's really written at a level that I think is accessible you know it's always in the eye of the beholder a little bit but we're not going to use terms that you probably haven't heard of we're going to introduce people Um, You can buy it at uh, IVPpress.com. I believe that's the website. Um, That's a great place to go. There is that other bookseller, what's their name? Starts with an A.
1: Yeah, that one.
0: Yeah, Amazon. Um, I'm pretty sure you can get it there. Although, you know, um, I don't know if Jeff Bezos needs any more money. Um, But, you know, that's a place you can get it. Hearts and Minds Books out of Pennsylvania is a great kind of local bookshop. Um, So, yeah, different places you can pick it up. But it's through IVP Voices and Views on Paul's. Me and Ben Witherington are the authors.
1: I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot. Are there any... For anyone who's interested in this or just anything that you're interested in right now, any, have any recommendations for listeners to be like, yes, definitely go buy your book. But if there's any other books that they, you know, if they've got some cash, bring a hole in their pocket. What other books would you recommend right now?
0: Oh man, asking a New Testament professor what books he's interested in is a dangerous one. Um, There's just so many, Um, you know, the last book that I read that kind of, I'm going to start using it in some of my classes. um, It's by another Anglican. Um, We know each other. Um, We uh, are, we haven't met, but we know of each other. Um, His name is Esau Macaulay and he's written a book called reading while black. Um, and just the yeah. whole kind of the, the Black experience in reading the New Testament. Um, it's also by IVP, go IVP. Um, but it's really accessible, really easy to read. But it's bringing up kind of some of the things we've been revolving around about how we read the Bible and the perspectives that we read from, and now how that helps us to see and also not see certain things. And so um, Esau's written a great book that's really kind of walks you through the New Testament a little bit on how to read the Bible. Um, faithfully from different um, places, but also on how the Bible speaks to issues that we're we're walking through today. Yeah, and so I would highly, highly recommend that book. I read it um, a couple months ago. I'm going to start requiring it for um, a lot of my upper level classes um, um, as a way to like kind of engage on on how we read the Bible from particular vantage points.
1: Wonderful. Hey, Jason, I appreciate the time that you've taken to kind of walk through some new perspective thoughts with our listeners and uh, hopefully get people encouraged to go you know read their bibles anew
0: yeah definitely thanks so much Aaron I've appreciated being on thanks for
1: inviting me yeah hopefully we'll chat soon all right see you later.